I'm not sweating. <laughs> All right, First Kings chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 26 through 43 this evening. And we're going to see where the kingdom is divided. We see a kingdom divided. Now, 1 Kings 11 really brings us to the end of Solomon's famous kingship. It brings us to the end of his life. It really gives us the last word on Solomon, at least for this part of the Bible. And after 40 years on Israel's throne, his life ends the same way anybody else's life ends. He dies. He dies. He's buried. And guess what? He has to leave behind every bit of those luxuries that he ever had. He gets to carry none of it with him. So remember, chapter 11 has really told us the story of Solomon's heart failure. How he gave his heart to many foreign women, to uh, many foreign pagan wives, and he gave his heart to worship their false gods. And so that terrible sin led to many terrible and tragic consequences that we've talked about throughout chapter 11. It led to those horrible consequences both for the king and for his kingdom, for all the people. They all experienced this. His kingdom was really disintegrated because of his sin. We saw that in chapter 11. Uh, We saw where God raised up uh, enemies, adversaries against Solomon. He had always lived in peace, but because of his sin, now he had enemies that were attacking him. Remember, Hadad attacked Solomon from Edom in the south, and Rezon attacked him uh, from Syria and came down into Israel from the north. But we see here in verse 26, the worst enemy actually came from within Solomon's own kingdom. In verse 26, it says, Then Solomon's servant Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite from Zaretta, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. So the guy that now is going to become his enemy is named Jeroboam, Solomon's very own servant. Verse 28 says of him, The man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So Jeroboam was a gifted man. He was a gifted leader. Uh, He was a man of wealth. He was a man of influence. Solomon noticed that. He noticed uh, what kind of guy he was. And so he put Jeroboam in charge of his workforce there in the northern tribes. He really sounds like a person described in one of Solomon's Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter uh, chapter 22, verse 29, Solomon wrote, Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. So this is the kind of guy Jeroboam was, and that's why Solomon promoted him. But the irony of this really is that in promoting Jeroboam, Solomon was unknowingly, to him at that point in time, elevating the very man who was going to be responsible for splitting the kingdom, for rising up to divide the kingdom, to be his adversary. And we find this out in this strange prophecy that we're going to see in verses 29 through 30. And this is a prophecy that changed Jeroboam's life and really is a prophecy that changed the history of the world, to be honest with you. Uh, This prophet that we're going to meet here is one most people never even think of. Most people don't even know his name, but he is responsible for one of the most important prophecies in the entire Word of God. Verse 29 through 30, it says, Now it happened at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem that the prophet Ahijah, Anybody ever heard of Ahijah? 
We don't think about him very much, do we? Ahijah, the Shilonite, met him on the way. And he clothed himself with a new garment, and the two were alone in the field. Then Ahijah took hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, Behold, I will tear the kingdom out of the hand of Solomon and will give ten tribes to you. So again, this is a prophecy from this Ahijah, the prophet, that is literally going to change the course of the whole world, the course of history. And this torn cloak was a sign. It was a sign of God's judgment. It was a sign that Solomon's kingdom was about to be torn apart. According to Ahijah, Solomon's kingdom would be torn into 12 pieces. That's a very significant number, right? What does that signify? Twelve tribes of Israel, right? That's what that represents. Now up to this point, the twelve tribes of Israel had always been united. Even when they were in slavery in Egypt, even even then, they were a united group. But from this point forward, the kingdom was going to be divided. You're going to have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. I won't ask you to name all the ten ten northern tribes, but can you name the two southern tribes? The two southern tribes. Benjamin, Judah, and Benjamin. And we'll see that in just a second. So it's going to be divided, a divided kingdom. Melanie, put that on your next youth group test. Okay. <laughs> uh, Israel and Judah. And so this was an act of judgment. And Jeroboam was going to serve as the agent of God's justice. God said to him in verse 35 and verse 37, I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and give it to you. Ten tribes. That's out of Solomon's son's hand. I will take you and you shall reign over all your heart desires and you shall be king over Israel. So God's telling uh, through the prophet Ahijah that he's going to give this these ten tribes to Jeroboam. In the long run, this division is going to turn out to be especially disastrous for the northern tribes, for the northern kingdom. Because the northern kings did not come from the line of David. The northern kings did not walk in God's ways. And so eventually, eventually both, both kingdoms will go into exile. But the northern kingdom went into exile much sooner to the Assyrians because their kings did not follow the ways of God. Well, the question is, and I mentioned a little bit earlier, that this was the will of God. Tearing away this kingdom from Solomon, dividing these tribes, this was in God's will. The question is why? Why did God allow this to happen to His own people? Well, the the answer is very simple. It's one word, three letters. Sin. Because of Solomon's sin, it was all because of Israel's idolatry. And the reason the nation of Israel fell into such idolatry was because Solomon started it by marrying those wives and worshiping their gods. We see that very clearly in verse 33. Because they have forsaken me and worshiped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the goddess or the god of the Moabites, and Milcom, the god of the people of Ammon and have not walked in my ways to do what is right in my eyes and keep my statutes and my judgment. So do you see where sin can lead? 
I don't believe for one second that when Solomon first started committing these, at least in his mind, little sins, these little sins of luxury, these little sins of giving himself to materialism, these little sins of uh, just taking one more wife until he finally had a thousand. I don't think when he first started doing that, he ever dreamed that it would lead to where he is now. Public shame, public disgrace, uh, the, the whole kingdom of Israel being divided. I don't think he ever thought that that would have led to this. But it did. So the question is, what will be the consequences of our own sin if we don't repent of it? If we continue down that road and let it snowball, we never know where it might lead. Well, when Solomon heard about this prophecy, he did everything he could to stop it. He didn't want that to happen. He's tried to keep it from coming true. Just like Saul, you remember when he once tried to kill David? Well, now Solomon's going to try to kill Jeroboam. But he doesn't succeed. He's too late. Verse 40 says, Solomon therefore sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. You notice anything interesting about that verse? You remember part of Solomon's sin was that he was providing arms and dealing with Shishak when God's word specifically told them not to have any dealings with Egypt. And now this guy that he thought he was business partners with is harboring his enemy. It never works out to do what God tells us not to do. It didn't work for Solomon. God had already spoken. The kingdom was just as sure as it, as if as split as if it already had been split. It was going to happen. And so Jeroboam escaped to Egypt and he just waited on his time before he had ruled over those ten tribes. Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of lessons we can learn from from this, from Ahijah's prophecy and also from the long-term consequences of Solomon's fall into sin. And we'll look at a few of those. I think the first lesson that we can learn is this, that God is the ruler of all nations. God is in control. He is sovereign. But whenever we see one leader raised up and another leader cast down, that should trigger something in our mind to say, I know God's in control of this. God is the one making this happen. He has the sovereign authority. Whoever gets elected president in November, it's going to be because God placed them there. That's the only only reason. And Jeroboam, the only reason he rose to power was because God raised him up to be the adversary of Solomon, to carry out God's own will. God was in control of all of this. Everything that happens is under God's control whether it's the rise or fall of a leader, or whether it's some kind of natural disaster. It's all under God's control. The Scripture says in Romans 13, 1, There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Listen, God is still on His throne. He is still in control And He is still ruling over the affairs of men. He still rules over every nation on the face of the earth. So that's one lesson. I think another lesson we can learn is that every single one of us are obligated to follow God whether we decide we're going to or not. It doesn't matter if we think we don't have to. The fact of the matter is, we're still obligated to do so and we're still going to be judged on whether or not we do. 
We see this in the command that God gave Jeroboam. And this command was very similar to the the command he once gave to Solomon. In verse 38, he said to Jeroboam, If you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and I will... and will give Israel, <coughs> excuse me, and will give Israel to you. Now notice that these blessings were contingent upon Jeroboam's obedience. Uh, many of Solomon's blessings were contingent upon his obedience as well. And if uh, if Jeroboam wanted to rule over David's kingdom, Jeroboam had to keep the law of God the way David did. He had to be like a man after God's own heart, similar to what David was. But there's something different between this promise and the one given to David. This promise to Jeroboam was conditional on his obedience. And God would have blessed him. And he would have made his kingdom great if he would have obeyed him. David's promise was unconditional. God promised David a king to sit on, uh, from his line to sit on the throne forevermore. And that's what was going to happen whether David was a man after God's own heart or not. We know David was. But unfortunately, Jeroboam, he didn't keep the condition. Jeroboam didn't have any interest in serving God. Uh, Jeroboam decided to serve his own interest, and really Jeroboam would go on to become known really as a king of false worship. He had no interest in following the Lord. But even though he decided that he did not want anything to do with God, he was still accountable to God for what he did and what he did not do. Whether or not he decided, I I don't want anything to do with you, God, or not, he still had to face God in judgment. And that's the truth for every one of us. We can say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. We can say, I don't believe in God. But the fact of the matter is, one day we're going to face him. And we're going to stand accountable for what we did and what we did not do. And that's what Jeroboam was going to have to face. He was going to be judged by God's standard, whether or not he thought he would or not. Same thing is true for every person. So, if God is truly God, then we should obey His law. And His law is for every person. We're called to walk in His ways and keep His commandments, and He'll hold us responsible for that. Well, the good news is, there's also a great promise we see in this passage. And it's a promise of grace that triumphs over judgment. Grace that triumphs over judgment. And this is something we see often in the Old Testament. Uh, uh, whenever there's a passage that threatens severe judgment, usually those passages also contain some of the clearest promises of God's saving grace and God's saving mercy. First Kings 11, no doubt, is one of the saddest passages of the entire Word of God. The kingdom of God was divided. It was torn in two. And the painful consequences of that was going to last for centuries. Again, eventually the northern tribes were scattered among the nations. They were lost forever. But God had not forgotten His promises. And God never forgets His promises. So I want you to notice this. Even as God was judging His people for their sins, He was also working for their salvation at the same time. At the very same time. We see reminders of God's saving grace in this throughout this passage. Almost in every other verse, almost, in Ahijah's prophecy, contains a promise of God's faithfulness to the house of David. 
the first reminder, look, in verse 32, in the parentheses there. The first reminder is this, but he shall have one tribe for my sake, or for the sake of my servant David, rather, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. It was true that this kingdom was going to be divided, and ten tribes were going to go to Jeroboam. The majority of them were going to go to Jeroboam. But that still left some tribes for the line of David. That still left some tribes for Solomon and Solomon's son. It left the tribe Solomon was in, of Judah, and it left the tribe of Benjamin. So even in God's judgment, he still showed his grace and his mercy. They didn't deserve to have any tribes. Solomon deserved to have it all ripped from him right then and there. But God showed mercy and grace and let them have those two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And there's also another gracious promise we see in verse 34. Verse 34 says, However, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, out of Solomon's hand, because I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of my servant David, whom I chose because he kept my commandments and my statutes. So Solomon was also shown mercy and grace in the fact that God was going to allow him to remain in power till he died instead of taking it away from him in his lifetime. And then the next promise of grace is even more reassuring. Verse 36 and verse 39, we see it. And to his son, to Solomon's son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen for myself, to put my name there, and I will afflict the descendants of David because of this, but not forever. You see that? God would not forsake His promise to David. He would not do it. He was going to keep His promise to David, that covenant promise, and the flame in David's lamp would never be extinguished. In other words, there would always be someone to sit on the throne from the line of David. There would be an eternal king come from the line of David. And God would not go back on that promise. And this reassurance was in keeping with the promise that he had made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 to 15. Remember what God said there. God said that if and when David's son was disobedient, Solomon, when he was disobedient, he said, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. We talked about this a little bit last week. But the punishment Solomon was enduring here was corrective. It was a corrective judgment to preserve his people, not to destroy his people. And so God was using this judgment to bring salvation. So when God divided the kingdom in his justice or in his judgment, he is also at the same time promised to preserve the kingdom by his grace. And this is where we're going to see this. By the grace of God, a remnant would survive. They wouldn't all be destroyed. They wouldn't all turn away. A remnant would survive. And out of that remnant, a true and righteous king would come again one day from the tribe of where? Judah, right? The tribe of Judah. And his royal lamp would shine forever in Jerusalem. God said he wouldn't extinguish the lamp of David, and he did not. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the light. Amen. He is the light of the world. All these promises find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. These promises would have given the people 
reading this great hope. Remember, when First and Second Kings were written, it was when the people of God were in exile. These people were in exile in Babylon. The southern kingdom was in exile. And can you imagine being in exile in Babylon? They probably had to have wondered if they were ever going to be saved. And so what did they have to cling to? They had to cling to this. The promises of God. The promise that one day God would send that king to come and deliver them. And God did. He upheld His promises. And the Lord will keep His promises to us as well. Jesus has promised that His church will prevail against the very gates of hell. You know that? He'll keep that promise. So we need to believe that promise. God is going to preserve His remnant. God is going to do everything for us that He has promised. He'll provide for our needs. He will forgive our sins. He will deliver us from danger. And when our work on earth is done, He'll be faithful to deliver us to glory. He's going to keep those promises. Well, the story of Solomon's life ends with these words that we see in verses 41 through 43. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Solomon, all that he did, and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the acts of Solomon? And the period that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Then Solomon rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. Those lines are not very memorable, are they? They don't brag on him. They don't talk about all his luxury and wealth and all those awesome things that he once did. Very unmemorable lines. Really, in this closing record on Solomon's life, the summary refers to some official documents which have long since been lost. It refers to how long he reigned, 40 years. And then when his work on earth was done, his, it says he died, he, his soul returned to God, and his body was buried in Jerusalem, and it says he slept with his fathers. And it tells us the royal line continued with his son Rehoboam ruling in his place. It's basically all it says. And the glory days are over because of Solomon's sin. As we come to the end of his life, how should we evaluate it? You know what an epitaph is? Brother Ken's got a sermon on an epitaph that I really like. An epitaph is just a saying that you put on somebody's tombstone, right? Something to remember them by. What would be on Solomon's epitaph? I think there's many good descriptions that we could choose to put on Solomon's epitaph from his very own writings. If we consider the way he began by asking God for wisdom to rule over the people of Israel, we might choose Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, or the beginning of knowledge. We might choose that if we think about his early, early years. If we look at the way he lived in his latter days, we might choose Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, where he wrote, Eat and drink and find enjoyment under the sun. In other words, live it up. But Solomon, I believe, learned how empty it is to live without God. So maybe we should choose Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, where he said, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
what that literally mean, what that literally means is in the context of Ecclesiastes, everything is vanity without God. Or maybe we should look at the way he died and quote his famous words from Ecclesiastes chapter three, verse twenty, where he said, All are from the dust, and to dust all return. But if we are hopeful that Solomon was saved, and I believe he was, and I think the biblical evidence points to the fact that he was saved, then I think we should draw from the love song that he wrote to his Lord and Savior. In Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4, he wrote, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I believe that is what we should put on his epitaph. But whatever epitaph we write for Solomon, the fact that he needs an epitaph at all reminds us of Solomon's limitations. Solomon was just a man. But praise the Lord, we know a greater than Solomon that has a greater kingdom, a king without an epitaph on his tombstone. And what kind of epitaph would we even put on a tombstone of somebody who was going to rise from the dead three days later. What would we put? See you soon? Would we put, see you on Sunday? I think this is what we'd put. I think we would put the words from the angel in Luke chapter 24, 24 verse 6. He is not here, for he has risen. That's what we would put. That's the kind of king we have. We don't have a dead king. Praise the Lord, we have a risen king, the true and righteous Solomon of our salvation, the one who is the true seed of David. We have the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have the power of His resurrection to give us the ability to live a godly life to the end of our days, and then to praise Him for all eternity when our days are over. That's the kind of king we have. Solomon's great. He's famous. We should remember Solomon and learn from Solomon. But our great king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope you know him. I hope you've put your faith and trust in him. Because he's your only hope. That is...